We're beginning a new series today, and uh, it's one I've been wanting to do for a while. And it's a call, really, for us to come back and take some time and look at what we learn and what we can understand from the Gospels that inform us about who Jesus Christ is. And I would suggest that there are some things in the Gospels, if we haven't been there in a while, or we haven't been thinking about them very much, there's some things in the Gospel that contradict a little bit of what we come to understand, or maybe not so much as we understand, but that we accept and we pronounce about Jesus, that we sort of put on him instead of letting Scripture inform us. And so we're just going to get acquainted again over the next few weeks with who Jesus is, who he was, and the significance of Jesus Christ to us as followers of Jesus. I mean, this is central to being a Christian. And so um, I want to begin with sharing a few images because Artists down through history have tried to portray Jesus to give us some kind of a visual conception of what Christ would look like. And every one of them's flawed. We know that. Every one of them is missing something, portrays him in a poor way. Every one of them's flawed. But bear with me because I'm going to go through a few of them. And, and some of them I think are humorous and some of them are troubling and, and unsettling. But this one, if you've ever been in my study, which I think most of you have, is sitting behind me. It's called Solomon's Head of Christ. It's a famous uh, work of art um, and one that hung in my home, which is really the reason why I keep it in my study. It's more of a nostalgia thing. I doubt that Jesus had hair quite like that. But he could have, I suppose. I also doubt that Jesus had blue eyes. We'll get to that in a moment. Some of us like the rugged, kind of a Charlton Heston, handsome movie star Jesus. You know? That's pretty appealing. He's still white. We, 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 you know, another handsome, shorter-haired, still with the beard Jesus. Some have opted for the iconic Jesus from a more historical perspective, I guess. Not in the history of the Gospels, but the history of the church. (coughs) Happy Jesus. We like happy Jesus. Black Jesus. That might be a little more awkward for some of us here. Yuppie Jesus. If we want Jesus in our image, that might fit some of us and our values. I told you it'd get humorous. Darth Jesus. Uh, Probably even getting close to blasphemous here. Staying with the Star Wars theme. Obi-Wan Jesus. Uh, Some of you have probably seen this. Somebody posted on Facebook another picture of of Obi-Wan and their mother had put it on their mantle and didn't know that it was actually from Star Wars and not an image of Jesus. I call this one the rather effeminate Jesus. Hipster Jesus, you know, 
Jesus is hipster. What's Jesus really like? Well, he's got a great tattoo. And instead of mother, it says father. Um, there's all kinds of theological things we could do with that. Um, this is one that came out not too long ago, a few years back. Jesus is my homeboy, so he's got kind of an afro. Uh, we're going to come back to this concept of Jesus. Uh, it's going to help us out a little bit later. But this is the one I really want you to look at, um, because this one is an image, and actually it's a 3D image. You can go on the internet and see Uh, they took a skull, a university in England took a skull that was found in Palestine, in in Israel, during an archaeological dig that was dated very close to the time of Jesus' life. And so they used some forensic people to rebuild off of that skull what they think the person looked like. And uh, then they offered this as the most accurate image of Jesus there's ever been. That includes some rather large assumptions. And uh, I don't know if this is the closest, but uh, that's what they think that skull would have looked like when that person was living. So I I said I was going to come back to Jesus as my homeboy. If you've heard that phrase before, um, you've probably been around uh, some more pop cultural Christian things. But... uh, the story of it is, is, is actually kind of powerful, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But there's this idea that Jesus gets to be recreated in our own understanding. So there's a historical person who probably looked like that previous slide, at least in the tone of their skin and maybe their build. But we tend to view Jesus in a way that looks a lot like us. And many of us, even apart from physical characteristics, would think that if Jesus walked through the door right now, he would speak English. Instead of, anybody want to guess? Oh, you're too good, Julie. Aramaic. Aramaic. And so we, we kind of shift Jesus closer to ourselves and we, we form this, what we call a Christology, oftentimes based on what we understand of ourselves more than what we understand of the the Christ that we find in the Gospels. And in fact, you can take this to quite a a distant degree. My friends in South Africa who are part of the Zulu tribe or Zulu speakers will tell you without hesitation that when we all get to heaven, we will speak Zulu. Because surely that is God's language because he gave it to us first. And... uh, you know, if you talk to Muslim people, they will tell you the only language that God speaks in is Arabic. Um, and so we tend to anthropomorphize something like that. Christ in our understanding of him. And Jesus then in our understanding has a tendency to look a lot like us. And so in my home and probably in some of your homes growing up, Jesus had blonde hair and blue eyes even though he probably didn't. But we liked that a lot. And for a guy in South Central Los Angeles, Jesus has an afro. And we like that a lot, that Jesus could actually be like me. And Jesus, like me, becomes a powerful image that we can hold on to. Jesus, even not necessarily like me, but just close to me, becomes a life-giving thing. And so here's the story 
Is the sound up? Crying and begging. Now that's when he stuck the gun to my head. And my whole life started flashing before my eyes. If a black person saw him, and they saw him looking black, and that was fine. If a white person across the board, Asian, whoever, when they saw him, we wanted them to be able to identify with him. They are doing so well, and you'll know because the Jesus is my homeboy is everywhere. And there was Pamela Anderson, Brad Pitt, Ben Affleck, and all of these celebrities wearing Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Jesus is my homeboy was not only here in the United States, it was being sold in all over the world. For me, it was personal. It wasn't something that I just decided to do. It happened from a real life incident. Jesus is my homeboy, saved my life. He saved my life. You know, just that phrase, I got in my car, and I started driving down the street. And I was thinking, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my homeboy. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I was like, I got to do something with this. Story we missed kind of at the beginning was that uh, uh, this guy was uh, in Los Angeles as a young man in the 1980s and was attacked by a gang. And they held him at gunpoint, and they were going to kill him. In fact, several in the gang were saying, kill him. And his defense was, he said, you don't shoot me because Jesus is my homeboy. Now, the language might be unfamiliar to some of us, being Midwestern white folk. But how many times have we sang, Jesus is my friend? Jesus is a friend of sinners? And so he called out when they held him at gunpoint, said, Jesus is my homeboy. And they turned around and walked away and they left him. And as he said, that changed his life. Now it's taken on some pop culture affectations that we may not like. But me, I mean, Jesus like me can be powerful. But what's even more powerful is when me is more like Jesus. When I begin to see changes in my life that look more like him and less like the world around me. And we'll come back to that a little bit later here. Let's look at some scripture. Got three passages from John, the Gospel of John, and some of these are going to be really familiar to them, particularly this one from John chapter 1. He, Jesus, came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. And just stop there for a moment. The world didn't recognize him. And we know that because the last thing we expect is God to show up, oftentimes, if we're honest. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. But to all who believed and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So this is a description that John, or the writer of the gospel, gives 
to us of Christ. This Christ came into the world, and even though the world was created through him, the world didn't recognize him, didn't know him, didn't appreciate him, didn't even accept him. And yet, to those who did come to the point of recognizing him and following him, he gave them the option to be children of God. He gave them the privilege. So, if we were to look back at who Jesus is, maybe one of the things that we could do is try to view Jesus through his own words. Historical Jesus is a very fractured, contentious uh, debate. And people have gone over this for centuries. Who was Jesus actually? Some have said you've got to strip away certain things in order to come to a historical Jesus. And so some people that have wrestled with theology and Christology have said, you know, anything that doesn't work with nature has to be taken out. So you've got to pull out all the miracles and all the strange stuff. That wasn't Jesus. That was all made up. Even if you do that, you have some problems dealing with Christ in terms of what he said about himself. And so if we, if we believe there's accuracy in the Gospels, and we tend to believe there's accuracy in the Gospels because there's other historical texts that run concurrent to the Gospels that validate some of the things historically that the Gospels say. There were you know, people like Josephus writing at a similar time that said things about what happened historically and historians have no problem accepting Josephus' account of what happened and they do not contradict the stories of the Gospels. And so if that's the case and the Gospel writers had some accuracy, then if they were accurate about the words of Jesus, then what he said about himself is really quite significant. And so I I want to just draw your attention to three things that he said about himself, how he identified himself. And they're not things that are unfamiliar to us, and yet, if you could go with me a little bit and use your imagination and try to step back into the culture of the people of, uh, of Judah, the people of Israel, the people of Palestine and Canaan at the time, these were things that were earth-shattering. So the first we see is that Jesus refers to himself over and over again in the Gospels as uh, a son of God. Um, that, to us, go, okay, you know, son of God. But, you know, I think I'm a child of God, too. I think I'm a son of God. And we're going to read in just a moment that that very designation caused problems for the Jewish people because they did not refer to themselves that way. And there were reasons for that, but he did. And actually it got a lot of people riled up. Another way that he referred to himself was as a son of man. And that's one that we might have a little bit more problem with because we who follow Jesus like to pronounce his deity. He is God. But he also was careful and repetitive in identifying himself as human. Son of man. And then, and we're going to read about this one too, he took a moment to identify himself as I am. 
in the Gospel of John. And for those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament texts, you remember that when Joseph was standing before the burning bush and struggling to connect this God who was this Yahweh God who was appearing to him and take this message back to the people of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt. He said, how do they know who you are? How do I identify you? How will they know that I'm speaking to Yahweh? And he said, you tell them, I am. And those three letters became a significant identifier that became welded into the conscience of the children of Israel. Our God is I am. And when Jesus identifies himself as I am, I've got to tell you, it would do more than just split the church. So, as he identified himself in these ways, let's read and see how that played out in the story. So in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 23, we read this part of the story. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. We'll come back to that later in the series, too, because we'll find out that Jesus was a radical disruptor, (laughs) which we don't always like about him, and they certainly didn't like back then. So he was breaking the Sabbath rules, but Jesus replied, my father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. Okay, let's just stop right there, because you would go, man, these Jewish leaders are crazy folk. He just, he just breaks a few rules and they want him dead. Except for the fact that the, these are people whose relationship with God is tied to how you keep the law, how you keep the rules. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm not going to keep those rules because I've come to supersede the rules. That's not good. That's unacceptable. So they're trying to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father. Remember? I am a son of God, thereby making himself equal with God. I'm going to stop again. I'm sorry for interrupting the scripture here, but I want to tell you something. When people come up to me and they say, so who are you? I use different kind of descriptors to let people know who I am. And occasionally, I encounter somebody who knows my father. And if they've known my father for some time and haven't seen me for some time, with almost without exception, when they see me, they go, you're Dean's son. Some of you know my dad, and you know why they say that. To the Jewish people, this was a no-brainer. You identify people as progeny because you know there are traits that they carry. You look like your dad. And Jesus said, That is my father, and for us, we call God our father, and it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal in our culture and our theology today. But let me remind you that things have shifted significantly in light of Christ. And so when Christ comes along and says, but the father is with me and I am in him, then they're going, no, 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 you're not. Because you are making yourself equal with God. Well, Talk about that some more. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Now right there, Dean and Hink separate. 
but Christ and the Father do not. Okay? For the Father loves the Son and shows everything he is doing. Shows him everything he's doing. In fact, the Father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. This is a huge declaration of authority for Jesus. I will give life to anyone I want. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge. So that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. I don't think I can state this strongly enough. To people hearing this, Jewish people hearing this in the time of Christ, this was heresy. This was so far outside of accepted boundaries, it was unbelievable. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, and here's that phrase, I tell you the truth, before, this is in in chapter 8, this is another passage, before Abraham was even born, I am. In his own words, Jesus is defining himself with the Father in these ways. As the Son of God, as a representation of the Father, as a son of man who is fully human, and as the I am co-equal in the Trinity with the Father. This, this was so disrupting to the way people understood God at the time, the Jewish people understood God, that they felt justified in having him killed. Really. His own words indicted him. C.S. Lewis then looks at these kinds of words and looked at them and said, you know, when it comes to wrestling with who Jesus Christ is, you cannot simply, and I'm paraphrasing, you cannot simply dismiss him as a good teacher. He is either the son of God or a delusional lunatic. That's what C.S. Lewis said. So, He's saying your options are either you go, he's who he said he was, or he was insane. I was recently having a conversation with my niece, and we were talking about blasphemy. We have fun conversations. And in our conversation, she asked me, she said, do you think that someone who in a in a deranged mental state, says, but I am God. They actually think they're God. She said, do you think they're committing blasphemy, the unpardonable sin? So, this was my response. I said, you know, here's what I think. I think that when it's a mental illness thing and they're delusional, I think it's the same as having a high fever and thinking that I'm somebody else. And God, in his mercy, understands that, not as a shaking my fist at God and saying, you're not God, but I am, but this is a person 
who really has no grasp on reality. But I said, on the other hand, there are people who, who really have a grasp on reality, but they simply choose to distance themselves from this Christ and establish themselves as God because I really want to be God instead of him. And the one I always refer to because it's kind of fun and it's also disturbing is Shirley MacLaine. You guys know Shirley MacLaine, the actress, New Age practitioner, and she tells the story of how in her life she finally came to this moment of freedom on the beach in Malibu outside her home where she walked out on the beach, deeply troubled about her life, and finally came to the realization that she was deeply angry, and so she lashed out and she yelled at God and said, you are not God, you are not God, I am God. And in that moment, she said she had this spiritual epiphany, and I am God, and she formed her entire belief system around that experience on the beach in Malibu after she'd probably gotten too much sun. And so when people come back and they say, how in the world can you follow this Jesus Christ? How can you believe in him? I would say, well, I have a little bit more to go on than Shirley MacLaine did. That would be my argument. And even so, there are things that Christ said very clearly to the people at the time in ways they would understand unequivocally he was establishing himself as, I am God right here with you. I'm not an apparition. I'm fully human. I'm not just an emissary from God who's got a message to carry. I am God. I am. In fact, before Abraham, the father of this nation, was born, I am. Those are the claims Christ made about himself if we hold the writings of the gospel to be accurate. Now, if you don't, then we've got all kinds of other issues that we have to talk about. But there are very few historians who refute the concept that Jesus was actually a historical being who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And I go back to my friend C.S. Lewis who says, you've either got to accept that he was God or a lunatic. Why does it matter to us, though? Why should it matter to us that Christ is who he said he is. Well, there's a few reasons that I want to point out to you. One has to do with the incarnation. The fact that God would come and come to earth in a recognizable human form is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. Now, we tend to think in terms of the incarnation in ways that are a little bit more acceptable. And God was incredibly gracious to us that when he came in the form of Jesus Christ, he came as a baby. Because I'm telling you, if he'd have showed up in the full form of God, I'm not sure we could handle it. Instead, he came in this form of an innocent baby that no one need fear. And even then, Herod feared him so much that he tried to murder him. But here is this fully human person that we accept, I hope you accept, as 
being fully God. Having the full extent of the Father in him. And then, you know, he, he is as this divine human, but at the same time then, he is doing things and he is saying things. So there's word and deed that follow him. And this is troublesome. It's troublesome for the Jewish rulers because he's going around and if he were just saying things, if it was just a guy spouting stuff off, they would have been, they would have been uh, given an easy task of dismissing him. I mean, if he just went around Palestine and Canaan at the time and said, you know, I think I'm God, I think I'm God, we probably would have gone, yeah, right. Right along with all those Jewish leaders. The trouble was, it wasn't just word, it was also deed, because he went around and he healed the sick. He went around and he drove out demons. He turned water to wine. So here, yeah, he raised the dead. I mean, we can go on and on. He did these things that the the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders, leaders just could not excuse. They couldn't just say, oh, ignore that. You can't. People became fixated on it, and anywhere he went, we're told in the Gospels, crowds followed. Why? Because he did amazing things. Some of you might remember a scripture I read not too long ago was that Jesus himself said to his followers, the only reason you're here is because I feed you. Well, yeah, you take one little lunch and you feed all of us. Do it again. Do it again, Jesus. That's essentially what they were saying. And so here he was saying these preposterous things at the same time that he was doing preposterous things and the two partnered together were awfully difficult to refute. And so for the Pharisees to sit back in Jerusalem and say, you know, that crazy guy up there, up there around, you know, Nazareth and Capernaum up in Judea, he's just nuts. Ignore him. He's departed his senses. And then, you know, those stories come back. But, you know, there's a guy that couldn't see. Blind since birth. There's, there's, all these, there's these ten guys that were lepers. There's this woman whose son was dead. And so this partnering, not only with what he says, but what he does, makes it virtually impossible to ignore him. And, of course, they don't ignore him. And even the Romans, the occupiers, who are not Jewish, who don't hold to this kind of a theology, who don't go to the synagogue, go to church. Even a Roman ruler, a Roman military official, summons Jesus on behalf of his daughter. And he heals her. And then Jesus follows this up. So he's got everybody's attention, and he follows that with what I call that follow me thing. Where he says to the people, you know what I really want is for you to follow me. And people followed. And people followed. And we're told they followed by the thousands. This is why Jesus Christ matters to me. 
You see, I, I have taken the position where I've gone beyond just looking at this historical thing and this thing in a critical eye, and I'm to the point of going, if he said that, and he did that, and people followed him, and it changed them in that way, then I'm going to follow him as well. And many of you have arrived at that place as well. That's why Jesus Christ should matter to you. And this is why he should matter to us and every other follower. You see, as we follow Christ, we are invited to become imitators of Christ. There's this famous book. I I looked this up on the internet uh, this week because I I wanted to have some of this accurate and make sure that I was telling you correctly. Um, Thomas Akempis, long ago, wrote this book, The Imitation of Christ. And as I looked it up on the internet, I learned some things I didn't know. It is the second most published book in history behind the gospel, uh, behind the Bible. The Imitation of Christ. And, and you know, way back, centuries ago, this guy, this monk, this thinker said, you know, I think what we should do is we should try to live our lives in the same way that Jesus tried to live his. And his exploration of that has been republished over and over and over again, thousands of times. And if you go to seminary, you've got to read it. They're going to make you read The Imitation of Christ if, they, if you're going to take any theology classes. And so here, this, this wrestle, this struggling with, I want to follow Christ, but that means I have to do like he did, is not something new. It didn't happen all of a sudden when you went to high school or after you got married. This is something that followers have struggled with since they saw him get up and walk away from a tomb. How do we do that? How do we imitate that? And so at some point here a few years back, a youth pastor, a youth leader in a church came up with this idea of challenging her teens and she put together these little bracelets and some of you remember about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, the WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Well, in order to understand what Jesus would do, I think we have to go back and look at what did Jesus do. What were the kinds of things he did when he was here? And how does that inform us in terms of being his follower? And so my challenge to you over the next few weeks as we're in this season of Lent is maybe take some time to read some passages from the four Gospels. Every time I read from the Gospels, I come across something and when I really think it through, I go, that is just bizarre. That is so strange. That is just bizarre that Jesus, who had everybody's attention and was vastly popular, would decide to eat with tax collectors and sinners. That was one of the passages I read in my devotions this week. And then all the notoriety he gained was lost because people said, see? See the kind of people he hangs out with? They're scum. And then I go, well, who do I hang out with? And so as we understand what Jesus did, it informs how we follow. And we could take that in a lot of different directions because we have quite an extensive story of what he did. But as we do that, we draw an image together.
We pull an image together. So I close with this. Years ago, when I was a college student, I was taking class in the Gospels. <clears throat> and my professor at the time, a wonderful man, he gave us this challenge. He said, by the end of the class, you're going to write a paper. And that paper is going to be your Christology. And really, at the time, I wasn't that familiar with the term. And he went on to explain that you're going to write a paper that tells me exactly what you believe about Jesus. And he walked us through it over several weeks and we put together more and more information and we started to write this thing. As I started to write my Christology, I became more and more disturbed because there were some things about Jesus that I had a hard time reconciling with my own life. There were things Jesus valued and loved that I did not. There were things Jesus did that I was not prepared to do. I would like to say that in you know, almost 30 years since then, I've reconciled those things. But I got to tell you, I go back to some of those things and go, I, I really do not want to do that. And yet he himself gave this kind of a challenge. And he said, you know, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow. And I go back to those words. It's what he said and it's what he did. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I don't like to deny myself. I mean, I can't even get off the starting blocks. Maybe some of you are, are doing this exercise during the season of Lent where you're fasting from something. And, you know, if it's something meaningful, about 24 hours in, you go, oh, I missed that. And the practice of denying ourselves, we're not just doing it because we're trying to make life miserable for ourselves, but we're doing it because we say, Lord, if you can deny yourself, then I can deny myself and help me to learn how to do that. Help me to learn how to say no in holy ways. And then if we can get off of those starting blocks, then we get to the point where this take up my cross thing. Really? You know, we, we, we have this turn of phrase now, well, that's my cross to bear. And I think it's a terrible phrase because we usually equate something trivial with Christ's crucifixion, you know. So, so my cross to bear is that I'm aging. Really? Everybody ages. Or, or my cross to bear is that I don't have a good job. Well, you know what? How many of us have struggled in employment that did not suit us and we did not enjoy. But that's nothing like going through the execution that Christ went through. And I would just suggest to you for us as followers of Jesus Christ that when we say this is my cross to bear, we better be talking about something truly monumentally sacrificial. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me.